0: Hi, hello. It's Pretty Little Grown Men.
1: Hi, I'm Dom.
0: I kind of wanted to go into like a Buck Rogers theme song, with that <laughs> one like, da-da-da-da, you know. <laughs> we're back. Uh, I'm David, and this is episode 43 of this podcast, which it is like... 40, no, I
1: thought it was 42.
0: I think it's 43. Uh, I think last week was 42, uh, the science episode. And so we're, oh. we're like 500 years old in podcast years.
1: We just, like, literally just finished recording an episode with uh, the folks over at Cabernet and A, and we had a pretty fucking fantastic time talking to them for almost two hours. Uh, And we also realized that we are, um, that we are, you're right, it is 43, we are, (laughs) we are pretty much on the exact same episode count as they are
0: yeah, so we kind of got our start around the same time in the Pll podcast universe, uh, which is a thing. There's several others out there, as you probably know, devoted listener. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we had a really good time with uh, with Sue and Chelsea, and they were very funny. Uh, and it was cool to talk to some other. PLL geeks because the folks we have on the show we've had we've had some serious PLL fans on the show but there's also been like you know some people we've just friends of ours who we've brought on (laughs) to just sort of goof around and you know respond to to our our slightly crazy obsession with this show.
1: Yeah I think after our uh, after last week's episode in which we talked about the technology of Pretty Little Liars I think we've now totally exhausted all of, all of the friends that we could possibly the, have. Yeah, all of our buddies
0: who could come on. And we, we should say this isn't, we didn't reveal this in last week, but that was like about an hour discussion and we chopped off a lot of it. <laughs> Partially just because we're recording on my laptop mic in like a room with people like sitting on the couch suddenly having, coming into the conversation mm-hmm. and we got into some pretty weird stuff we were like playing some beats that we had made on apps on our phone and you know it just got a little out of control
1: <laughs> it was definitely an experimental episode it was the most experimental episode of pretty little grown men yet
0: right so you know someday we'll put out the the b sides or the uh the uh extended you know yeah extended edition
1: yeah when uh you know, in the next uh, let, let's set a goal for ourselves. In five months, when we start up a prescri- very, uh, prescription, a subscription service, um, that'll be one of the bonuses that you get for your four ninety nine subscription.
0: Yes, forty minutes of us playing beats on our phones into my computer <laughs> <laughs> and talking about like David Lynch and stuff.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> we, we went there. Um, so, we, uh, since we just sort of exhausted our uh, discussion of Pretty Little Liars for the night, um, we sort of just wanted to talk a little bit. There's one thing that I've been thinking about, Dave, that I wanted to ask you uh, because yes. I know that you've been involved in this uh, this week. Oh, and, okay. Um, so, uh, for, I'll give some some sort of expedition for the people at home, but your. Your favorite, uh, spiritual bro, um, released a covers album of Taylor Swift's uh, 1989, which is also an album that you also like quite a bit. I do. Uh, and then, and I have nothing against that. I don't even really want to get into like why Ryan Adams did it. I think that... I will be
0: happy to tell you why. (laughs) Okay. Well,
1: we will in a second, but there's something else that I wanted to talk about. Yes. Uh... Which is that after Ryan Adams released his this album, which you know, I think that a lot of a lot could be said about how sincere he was, and to me it seemed like just a general sincerity. Um, but then you have uh, a recording artist by the name of Father John Misty who record who released a cover version of Ryan Adams' cover version of a Taylor Swift song. What is it? Bad Blood?
0: He did, uh, he did two songs. He did Welcome to New York and he did, um, another one which I can't remember which was, which was both in the style of The Velvet Underground. Okay. I mean, it wasn't, it had nothing to do with Ryan's musical inspiration at all. It was totally in the style of The Velvet Underground and I think it was just totally making fun of the covers.
1: So that's, that's, that's what my question is. It almost seems like you know, I don't. I know that Father John Misty sort of, uh, you know, works in this interstitial area between sincerity and parody in, in a lot of ways. Um, that's kind of this image that he has, and I've read like pretty compelling accounts of live shows that he's put on, where uh, I think a lot of people either accept and enjoy what he's doing or get offended by the way that he's acting, because right. I think that in many ways he antagonizes the audience. Um, this. To me, and I didn't listen to it uh, because I didn't want to, I guess. I don't know. Uh, but the idea of it felt, and then he, didn't he subsequently delete?
0: He deleted them and he wrote this extremely long, totally ridiculous explanation of a dream he had where, like, the ghost of Lou Reed told him, like, the dead aren't, aren't for your consumption or some some weird, uh, okay. you know, weird Zen uh, takeaway so
1: okay so then I, what i wanted to ask you is what is your take on that because for me as sort of an outsider uh who only sees this these things happen but doesn't really engage with them it seems like he's just sort of being pointlessly antagonistic to the point where it's like eh, you just seem like you're just Trying to pick a fight or trying to get some attention—it it doesn't seem like that was anything that you really needed to do, or anything that really—anything ca- that uh, anyone really cares uh, about hearing your opinion on. Um, and for me, that just kind of like—I uh, I think it, it, it looked bad, and maybe that's partially why he deleted it. But I would like to get your opinion on this.
0: Oh, boy. I'm rubbing my hands together here. (laughs) Um, Let me give you my whole... I'm going to give you my whole spiel on this one. Um, So let's walk it back to just Ryan Adams covering Taylor Swift. I've been a Ryan fan since about 2003, and I started listening to him... um, It was after Heartbreaker had come out, and I think after Gold had come out. Maybe it was right around the time Gold was coming out and New York, New York was becoming a single... Um, I heard about Heartbreaker because some of the dudes on my post-Dave Matthews band message board um, who ended up over the next few years being super into Ryan and The National and The Hold Steady and all these sort of like beer drinking, you know, indie rock but also like kind of masculine like rock bands like Heartland, Authentic you know rock and roll bands and so Ryan's Heartbreaker was just one of these records that became like this mythic record on this message board so you know I went to the store and I I was visiting the Pomona College in California looking at schools when I was in high school and bought Heartbreaker and came home and listened to it and obsessed over it and so I've been a Ryan fan since pretty early on in his solo career and loved all the stuff he did you know in '03 and 05 when he put out three albums and like you know was reading all the critical consensus at that time and people were like oh he put out three records what a crazy person these are so bad whatever um and i remember being super angry about it because like at least two of those three are classic albums um and it just felt like people were being blindly dismissive of him so anyway what i'm trying to say is i've been along for the whole ride mm-hmm. of like the critical response to Ryan Adams and like in the last few years it's been really interesting to watch this like huge rehabilitation process first with Ashes and Fire and then with the self-titled album last year where every critic was like oh let's completely pivot now now that he's like sobered up and gotten married and isn't like this crazy person on the internet all the time uh, and now we can actually say, "Oh, this is one of the best songwriters of his generation, and he 's this incredible vocal and guitar talent, and we can like start to have those conversations mm-hmm. that nobody wanted to have in two thousand and five or two thousand and seven or whatever for whatever reason mm-hmm. um, so people i've I've seen like the opinions on him just like go back and forth and back and forth uh and with Taylor. I've been a fan of her since Fearless, the second record. And so Taylor's five albums in now. And it's really weird to me that Fearless, which won the Grammy for Album of the Year, when Taylor was like 20 or 21, and she was like the youngest person ever to do that. Mm -hmm. That album's been kind of forgotten. And what's remembered is the VMA's thing with Kanye, Mm -hmm. the I'ma let you finish moment. And then she she came back a year later and put out... um, She put out the album that has, uh, I forget what it's called, not Red, but, um, oh God, it's my least favorite one, Speak Now, but Speak Now has a song that's basically about the Kanye thing, um, and about John Mayer, and whatever, you know, that's like sort of her big celebrity reference album, and I think her most erratic body of work, but that was the first one that sold a million copies in a week. Uh, and then Red did the same thing, and then 1989 did the same thing. So it's weird because Fearless, which to me is like her sort of classic, like super coherent classic rock record where all the songs are about the same thing and it tells a story, um, that's been forgotten, and her first album, the super country one, has definitely been completely erased. Like Mm -hmm. if you talk to someone about Taylor Swift now, people would have no idea that once she sung in like a super twangy Nashville voice, like that she abandoned on Fearless, and then definitely abandoned on Speak Now. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've also been on this Taylor train for a long time. So what I can tell you about Taylor and Ryan is that Taylor's been an outspoken fan of him for years. Um, And I don't think I had seen Ryan talking about her before, but what he said this week in a bunch of interviews and the one that he did with um, Zane Lowe on Apple's Beats 1 radio was really good he says that the song White Horse on Fearless was the song that really opened his eyes to her songwriting talent. And ever since, he's been following her. And they did a writing session together before 1989 when she was kind of just finding her co-writers uh, and had worked together a little bit. So him doing this album is not completely out of nowhere. Yeah. And what he said in the Beats interview is that you know, he didn't hear it as, like, this pop crossover or this, like, big produced Max Martin record. He heard it, he just heard the emotion of the songs and, like, the the power of the lyrics and, like, the relationship content and so on, and he talked about recording it as, like, um, the aftermath of the record that he just finished, which is going to come out hopefully this year, and just this extra way to keep processing those feelings by doing this material. So, it's not a gimmick you know by by any if you believe what he said and you look at their relationship and their connection like there's no reason to think it's a gimmick i do think there's like the cynical level of him doing this is going to expose him to like millions and millions and millions of taylor swift fans right who if they like the old stuff will probably be into his music because you know they're not so dissimilar they have a lot of the same uh, feel in terms of yeah. or influence in terms of the country stuff his alt country stuff you know um, so that's like a cool thing to me actually is that Taylor Swift fans are going to discover him and the other side of it is of course these Ryan fans who can be very you know sort of rockist, maybe a little conservative dudes who don't look at someone as, like Taylor as like a serious songwriter either because she's a woman or because she's on pop radio or mm-hmm. whatever Um, so they're going to hear these songs and be like, oh, these were great songs all along. Or maybe they'll have the shitty opinion of, oh, Ryan made these songs so great, you
1: know? Well, I mean, isn't that like, you mentioned the word cynical and I guess that's the word that I was thinking of when talking about Father John Misty. It feels cynical.
0: Well, so let's get to, let's get to that. So I think the Ryan (coughs) Taylor thing is very pure. Um, I mean, certainly everyone benefits from Ryan Adams, you know, uh, Middle-aged, serious songwriter doing an album, male songwriter doing an album of her stuff. Like, there is a level of, like, it gives credibility to her, to his audience. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that she needs that credibility. Obviously not. She signed a songwriting deal when she was 13 years old. She's a genius. But... Um, I think it does give her cred with a certain variety of critic who maybe was not taking her as seriously and I think it does help him probably sell a bunch of records so you know it's this win-win and I don't think there's anything wrong with that um, because it comes out of this honest appreciation Um, and the way he talks about her songwriting and the way he breaks it down in the Zane Lowe interview is like that's not from someone screwing around like that's someone who's taking it seriously Um, but Father John Misty he is a real character to me and he rubs a lot of people the wrong way. And I have a hard time empathizing with it because I think he's very funny. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think his first album was so interesting as father John and the stuff he was doing before, just as Josh Tillman was like very dour, like Neil Young, tonight's the night kind of sad bastard stuff. And, you know, I didn't think he was so great at that. And just reading interviews with him, it seems like he had the revelation of like, He didn't have to sort of put on that face anymore. And like, he's a funny, sarcastic, cynical person, and he could put that in his music and be more expressive. And that's what I hear on this new album, on his new album, um, which I think is just like a real triumph of vocal performance. I mean, Mm. he sounds like one of these like 60s country guys. I mean, it's just golden voiced singing. I think the songs are beautiful. I think they're really funny. I think he addresses romance and relationships in a way that like is very honest and it just because it's funny it doesn't mean it's not sincere Mm. you know i think you know in modern music there's a lot of trouble with putting humor into it um i think in hip-hop it's a lot easier you can have your punchline, but if you're not father john misty or jens leckman or you know you go back to someone like paul simon you know who Mm. was like no one remembers this, but but Simon and Garfunkel were like doing Bob Dylan parodies on their third record. You <laughs> know, like Big Bright bl- Bright Green Pleasure Machine is like a Dylan parody, yeah. and that's after they were doing a super earnest Dylan cover on the previous album.
1: Right, right. You know,
0: so there is like a long tradition of this stuff, but I think listeners and critics are maybe not used to it in a weird way because it is so rare that someone is like trying to make a joke in a song or trying to be funny but not have it be like Weird Al Mm -hmm. or have it be a parody song but I think the Father John doing Taylor doing Ryan in the style of Velvet Underground I just thought it was funny I mean it's not mean per se I mean it it is like critiquing Ryan doing these covers of this pop artist um, but I don't know. I mean, Taylor doing Welcome to New York. I mean, that was a song where she was like totally criticized for having no conception of like what is New York really and what is the history of this place and like the dark side of it and all that stuff. It's just like this rich person coming to this city and like ruining it, was Mm -hmm. what a lot of people said about it. And so, him doing that song in the style of Lou Reed, who wrote more poetically than anybody about like the dark sides of New York, I mean, that's a very clever critique. And very funny, and like the the music that he did for it, like is you know, very effective. It's not like a shitty job. Mm -hmm. Like they're nice songs, they're cool versions. Yeah. So I just thought it was like this is this funny tongue-in-cheek thing that isn't like it's not antagonistic. It's not like God, how dare you? Okay. You know? I just think he I think he's someone who critiques I think a lot of it came out of critiquing media because he posted these things and immediately there were like Super credulous, sincere write-ups on Pitchfork and Spin yep. and all the other you know twenty-four-seven yep. music content farms. And he tweeted after that, "The world is really dumb," or he said something like that. Yeah. And I almost tweeted today, like, "God, I wonder if he has a bet with somebody of like what he can just say on the internet to get people to just re- re-blog it." Mm-hmm. You know, because he posted that whole narrative today about the weird dreamy ad, which like it's probably something that he just made up and was fucking around. Oh yeah! And of course, that explanation got posted just as like a flat news article, right? On every single site, and it's like no one, no one was able, no one said like, you know, perhaps he's fucking with us, perhaps he's trolling us to get attention, you know?
1: You know, it's it's funny that you mention it that way because um, I think that up until you just said that, I was thinking about it in a very cynical way, or even just thinking like what's the point why does he think that he should be the one to to make that critique to make that statement and i think that it's like um i you know the the drake and future mixtape came out uh what yes 2 days ago or something um and of course i haven't listened to it yet cuz i don't have a apple beats um subscription and of course it's exclusive to that or whatever but um, <clears throat> I I was most dreading people already reviewing it because it's just like hey everybody let's give this a little bit of time before we start forming what essentially are concrete opinions about it right um, I should
0: say I put up my my Ryan review on Sunday night uh, and I listened to it three times well I think that Sunday well
1: night. I also think that like. I would say that it's different because of your deep connection to it and your anticipation of it. Right.
0: I I think, you know, I wasn't even going to write about it, but then I listened to it three times that day and I was like, oh, I have ideas. Okay, I'm just going to do it. I, you know, it's a funny thing where I feel like, honestly, am I one of the, like, top ten most qualified people on earth? To have ideas about Ryan covering Taylor Swift, I might actually. I be. think that if, if you if you
1: are <laughs> contemplating that possibility, then it might be a real possibility.
0: Right. I mean, you know, humble brag or yeah. whatever.
1: <laughs> well, but so, but this is what I what, what I'm getting to is that it's just like I was just waiting for you know like the pitchfork review of of Future and Drake, um, and I think that there's this idea on the internet where if if you can do it, you should. And you should be the first person to do that. Right. And maybe that's kind of what has brought me around on uh, maybe not thinking about the Father John Misty thing so cynically is that he had this idea and he's like, well, why don't I just do this? Oh, yeah. I can, so why don't I?
0: Right. I mean, like, I can't read his mind. I mean, like. I think it's a 50-50 thing on like the level of malevolence or the level of like cynicism or wanting to get attention that went into it. Mm-hmm. But I just, he seems like a guy who has a sense of humor and he probably thought, man, it'd be really funny if I did this yeah. and put it on a SoundCloud and just fucked around. Yeah. And so that seems like the most straightforward explanation of it. Mm-hmm. And then when he realized it was going to like become this huge viral embarrassing thing, then he was probably like, Oh god, I don't want to be in the middle of this like weird media shit show and then mm-hmm. deleted it. That's that's my that's what I think about it.
1: Okay. Um I yeah. give him
0: credit cuz I think he's actually just a super talented, amusing, interesting artist. I don't think he's like this weird asshole or whatever. I think he's great.
1: Have you ever seen him live?
0: I saw him for about 15 minutes at Sasquatch and he sounded awesome and he made fun of like the the branding and all the you know mm-hmm. weird, weird corporate stuff that was going on there, and it's like that's to me very amusing.
1: So I guess then another question would be: um, Is he joking about that, or does he actively disdain that kind of stuff? Because at the same time, that's that's the kind of stuff that made him who he is. That makes him able to play these festivals. Is this 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 attention? that comes with media that is sort of birthed from that culture on the internet?
0: I think for, I, I really think it's a double-edged sword. I think in terms of like the branding and the corporate stuff and where the money comes from, I think that's a really tricky position for artists. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I went to an event the other day um, at Ron Russell middle school here in Portland. And, you know, it's kind of out on the far end of town and, um they don't have a ton of money and but they have this like you know a, a music teacher, a music teacher that well several great music teachers but you know one of them won this Mr. Holland's award um in the last couple of years and like so clearly this person who's really trying to do her best bringing music to the schools helping these kids in this low income neighborhood and so the event i was at was uh it was a surprise Portugal the Man concert And it was StubHub and the Mr. Holland's Opus Foundation partnering to give these kids and this school $35,000 of instruments. And as part of this presentation, which is this wonderful charity thing that's going to benefit these kids, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's multiple bands, there's multiple orchestras and choirs at the school. These instruments are really expensive. You know, $35,000 comes out to something like 15 or so instruments. I mean, you know, you're talking about a... Uh, a cello or an upright bass or a saxophone right. mm-hmm. or whatever, you know. So, it's this really important thing and the public school system, the funding is just not there for music programs uh in the way it is for like math class or whatever. But the sort of thing I walked away from feeling funny about was as part of this presentation, StubHub did a pitch mm-hmm. and they were like how many of you know what StubHub is? Raise your hands. And they said StubHub is like this eBay for concert tickets and gave their little spiel. And so it's not like this pure charity effort. Right. It's this promotional thing as well to, you know, these impressionable young kids. Um, so I'm not saying I don't want to go on record either way of saying this is good or this is bad. Yeah. Then, you know, the instruments coming from somewhere is good. But, you know, later that day I went on Twitter and I was like, this happened and it made me feel weird. And I think you all should know that, you know, this is what's happening in the schools because public funding isn't there. That brands are coming in and and filling that gap and this is what comes with that. Um, So, you know, I think it's a really weird thing where the money to support music and support art and whatever has to come from somewhere. And it really doesn't seem like it's going to come from the consumer or from a government subsidy or whatever. And so it has to come with this cost of the corporate sponsorship or of the, you know, if you want to put your record out, you have to do press and you have to try to get on Pitchfork and Spin and Billboard. And like a lot of these guys, a lot of these artists, uh, men and women, uh, you know, do they like doing two days of interviews? Of course not. Mm -hmm. You know, they want to play guitar. They want to make a beat you know, they want to play shows.
1: The, uh, so something that you, I'm sure that you've heard of has to do with, uh, the former lead singer of Thursday, the band Thursday, who is also the current lead singer of a band called United Nations. Uh, I haven't, I haven't heard about this. Okay. So, uh, his name is Jeff Rickley. He, uh, runs, um, the, I think they're called collective records, uh, which is his sort of passion record label about with all of, these bands that he believes in and um, you know Thursday was kind of a was uh, I guess best characterized quickly as a screamo band but um, developed a pretty extensive cult fan base and then the Thursday broke up and he started this new band which is sort of being touted as a very political band a very socially conscious band a very anti-capitalist band but Recently, uh, two things came in, in into public knowledge. One is that uh, this guy, whose name I can't remember, I think he was a stockbroker or something. Hedge fund manager. Hedge fund hedge fund manager, who uh, bought the I think the rights or bought, basically bought an uh, an HIV medication. An AIDS,
0: med- AIDS medication. An, an AIDS
1: medication. Uh, And he basically, because he now owns it, uh, raised the price on it astronomically.
0: Hundreds of dollars. 5,000%. Yeah.
1: Uh, Then it came out that this guy who did this atrocious thing uh, is one of the main investors in collective records. So uh, Jeff Rickley then uh, almost was pushed into making a public statement about this. Uh, because of his background and, and the nature of his, of his musicianship and what his band stands for. And his, his public statement was basically like, I'm not going to communicate with this person over the press. I'm going to talk to him face-to-face, but this really saddens me. Uh, but also, the blunt reality of the situation is there is no way for any artist in our current society to succeed without some connection to corporate dollars and that was basically like that's the sad reality of what we do and he's like you have to either figure out some some sort of like magic bullet to make your record label succeed uh without that kind of connection or you have to believe in art and the dissemination of art so much that you're willing to make that kind of sacrifice uh and just be really true to yourself through the whole thing. And it was a really uh, sincere thing for him to say because he's basically like, I'm re- it really sucks that I'm in this position right now. It really sucks that I have to talk to the artists on my roster and tell them what's going on. And you know, it sucks that we might lose our record label. It sucks that this person is like that. This person who invested this money, who believed in us enough to invest in a record label that's not going to make a lot of money, It sucks that he did this. It sucks that he's this kind of person. Yeah. And it's really heartbreaking. And I think that that was one of the most true, sincere statements that I've heard come out of an artist like that in a long time. Either because you have someone who just denies uh, their involvement with corporate dollars, or you have someone who gets really defensive about it. He was basically just honest about it.
0: Right. Or you have, like, the, the Bon Iver thing of, like, taking the money and then later, like criticizing the company or or saying you regretted doing it or whatever you know, I mean, which can be an honest thing, but at the same time, you know you took that paycheck and you built your studio, and that's fine, dude, mm-hmm. just like you know, just just say you needed the money and you took the money and it's fine yeah. you know mm-hmm. yeah i I think this is such a horrible position for artists to be in because it's lose lose yeah, you know, I think part of it is like the people who care are more people in the media. Or critics versus the actual fans because um, I'm reading the book No Logo right now, which deals with a lot of this stuff up through the 90s, up through the end of the 90s. Um, But really, I don't think very much has changed and things have just gotten worse in terms of like the brand exposure and like what people are comfortable seeing at a festival. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, if you go to Sasquatch, I wrote a whole article about the Twix stage and being like, this is so corny and stupid and it takes me out of the artistic experience of being at this thing and trying to watch bands. But, you know, it's not like there was any public outcry about it. It's not like fans were like, this is gross, we hate it, you know. Yeah. People, I think, especially younger millennials are so accustomed to it that they don't even like see it, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. It's just all gray gray area to them. Yeah. So, I think a lot of these the musicians who say, oh, it's they have um the musicians who end up regretting entering into these kinds of things, I mean this like hedge fund guy aside, because that's a real shit show. Yeah. But you know, someone who just licensed a song to a car commercial or whatever, you know, I mean I think the regret comes more from like their peers criticizing them more so than their actual younger fans who I don't think care. Mm-hmm. And if those fans did care, that would force them into spending 10 bucks on an album or spending 20 bucks on a t-shirt or whatever it is and certainly people do but you know for people like Jeff Rickley I mean I'm sure most of the bands he works with have a real hard time breaking even or doing music full time or anything like that mm-hmm. you know it seems like either you get in the position of like you do get a, a boatload of endorsements and you can play with Kanye and you can tour and you can do all the stuff like Justin Vernon does But if you're this tiny little band, you probably are getting by on like, you know, maybe you secretly went off and did a Coke jingle and you didn't do it under your band name, right? you know, and I could tell you so many artists who have this very quiet career in like doing library music or doing licensing stuff or doing things that like, it's not going to be a song, you know, it's not going to be like, oh, I heard this band in a Toyota commercial good for them, mm-hmm. it's going to be, like, something that didn't come out under th- their name. That was an original work. And, like, I know that happens in Portland and I know it happens in L.A. and, like, you know, there's a lot of, like, secret stuff like that where it's just sort of embarrassing for everybody, mm-hmm. but you have to do something to get paid.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just... I know that I don't even think about it anymore. Like, I think that... Um, I don't know why I keep returning to this, but probably because it's one of my favorite albums, but... um uh, the second track off of uh, Moon in Antarctica um, was, I think, it was in a, It was in a. It was in a car commercial back in the day. Right. Uh, the, back in the day, back in the early two thousands, um, and I remember he- hearing it in this car commercial, and it was it was for a minivan. I don't remember which which car company, but it was for a minivan. Yeah. Uh, and I first I remember thinking what the fuck, why is Modest Mouse in a car commercial? Then I remember thinking, oh, that's cool. Like, I think it's really cool that they especially use this song for a car commercial. And from that point on, I remember just not ever really thinking about it in a negative way. Because Uh I think that I eventually, especially as a writer, uh, you eventually start to realize that in order to support yourself, in order to support a family, in order to... Uh, continue to do what you want to do, you have to make those concessions. You have to stay true to yourself, but uh, do what you need to do in order to uh, continue. Now, I'm not saying, like, making, like, you know, you know, like, agreeing to write a jingle for, like, a cigarette company or something like that. You know, something that you just, like, totally don't believe in at all. But understanding what it takes in order to continue making art
0: right i mean i think the best way to think about it is not so much is this good is this bad is to think about what happens to music when the clients are music supervisors Mm -hmm. for brands or for tv shows or whatever Mm -hmm. and the answer is you have bands trying to get to the studio to make glossier sounding music and making music that Fits into whatever trend is going through the ad agencies for the three year period, which is why when you turned on, you know, this share a Coke commercial, uh, it was recorded right here in Portland and it has like, I can't remember if it has a ukulele on it or whatever, but it's like this sort of very like twee, uh, stereotypical Portland thing.
1: Is that what Marmoset did?
0: Yeah. Marmoset in Portland is the agency that, um, that did that. And, you know, great, great for everybody who, mm-hmm. who got that. It's a big look. But, um, you know, that meant music was being created for that purpose. And other bands are going to hear that and try to make music like that. And, I mean, I think it's clear with a lot of these, especially in the last three four years, these major label, quote unquote, indie bands, um, people like Passion Pit or Churches or, you know, not even so much them, but bands who are like the shittier versions of them, like American Authors. Or any band that has like a woe-oh-oh in the chorus, you know. You just have all these bands who are making music specifically to be played in like the trailer of uh, a teen movie, Mm -hmm. you know. Or to be played in a car commercial or, uh, you know, whatever it is. And it's just like upbeat, inspirational, and it's like maybe that's really the music you believe in and you want to play every night. Mm -hmm. But maybe it's just what you thought was going to get you a $20,000 check for oh, yeah. Toyota, uh-huh. you know? Mm-hmm. And I think you can definitely look at the music that was... As soon as TV commercials started regularly licensing, licensing indie rock, and TV shows did too with, with Death Cab and The Shins and things like that in like the mid-early 2000s, you know, guess what? All of a sudden there's 5,000 more bands that sound like that.
1: Yeah. You uh-huh. know?
0: So I think it warps art. It warps the creation of art because you no longer have... Bands finding their audience of weird kids or of like, you know, this next generation of teenagers. Now you have music that's sort of being generated based on ad dollars and you don't get this sort of unfettered underground relationship of like musicians making music for their friends Mm -hmm. or for the people around them or whatever. And that idea, the idea that you could have a band like Minor Threat or you could have a band you know, like Sonic Youth or whatever. Um, You know, I I don't know who that band is in 2015. And those bands exist, but they also are not being written about in the media because media is moving further away from covering authentic independent culture Mm -hmm. because the media itself is dependent on ads and has to get more traffic than it got last year has to be up 30 percent or whatever it is and so you have fewer and fewer outlets like pitchfork or fader or spin devoting a majority of their resources toward the underground and now it's more just like let's do five thousand blogs about father john misty Mm -hmm. and taylor swift and drake
1: yeah i think that uh the sad thing is you know we are past the point of no return and i keep you know, working for uh, a section of a magazine that's uh, the movie section, you know, one f- our, the biggest uh, sort of page view articles that we have are um, Netflix lists, streaming lists. And I've, and I've contributed very heartily to these lists. And it's fun because I get to write about a lot of different movies that I love. But at the same time, and you know, in very capsulated forms, but at the same time, that's a lot of, that's a lot of effort and words spilled on uh, lists for the purpose of giving people little mini guides to streaming to the point where there is a, maybe a period of a month or two where I felt like that's like all we were like publishing was just these like Netflix lists. Well, and, and
0: that's a funny thing, right? Because on the one hand... You're basically giving free advertising to Netflix right. on the, on the other hand, this is this thing that millions of people use, and it would be very useful to them as film and TV watchers to have this resource and Isn't that our job as journalists to say here's what you should know yeah about and these
1: exactly, and that's why I never like publicly decried it, and I'm not doing that now um, but I do think that that takes away from uh for me personally it takes away from time and effort put into writing more extensively and more in depth about smaller movies that i think that people should watch right uh that don't have as much accessibility don't have as much press time and so it's sort of like the trend away from uh, the independent artist which at this point it just feels like is not sustainable if you can't And I think that, you know, you probably experience this more than I do, uh, writing for a regional outlet um, that has to devote a certain... that should ethically devote a certain amount of uh, space to local acts. I agree. Um, But at the same time, it's like, what do people want to read? They want to read stuff about Drake and Katy Perry. They want to read... Oh, I'll
0: tell you, they want to read about the... uh... The Foo Fighters concert last week. Right. Which I... Excuse me. Wow. That was a lot of rain here. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I went to... Last week I saw, you know, the two big things I wrote were I went to see Shania Twain and I went to see Drake and I... Or not Drake. uh, Foo Fighters. Mm -hmm. And took photos and, you know, enjoyed writing those reviews. But those got a ton of traffic, paid my bills for the month, sort of. Mm -hmm. um, And the Q&A... Interview I did with Destroyer, who's one of my favorite interviews and I, one of my favorite musicians, and I feel like I got a lot out of them. You know, that didn't even come close yeah. to the level of traffic. And if right. that had been my main thing for the week, you know, it would not have looked great. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, I think it's I I really struggle with the idea of the page view model because I just see it being this escalating into infinity where it's never good enough and you can never make enough money on it Mm -hmm. because the rising tide floats everyone's boat up to the point where the advertiser can say, well, you all have five bazillion page views, so I can just pay you this lower rate because your page views are deflated, essentially. Mm -hmm. The value is deflated. So as a business model, I think it's really problematic. And I mean, you know, this is why... 3 years ago I wanted to do a Kickstarter for a new music publication that'll be funded by readers and then have that turn into a subscription based thing you know and I I do think there's still you know the possible I think there's the need for that I don't think there's actually the demand for it or the demand needs to be created by people um and I think you see it with streaming music with stuff like Tidal yeah. where Jay-Z is like listen we need you to pay money for this <laughs> because otherwise everything's just gonna fall apart. Yeah, and you know, and at least this is artist-owned, and they did a bad job with their rollout in terms of like the public, uh,
1: yeah, I think image so.
0: of it. But you know, I mean, the point is like, the money has to come from somewhere, and if it if it doesn't come from your your music fan or your reader or whatever, then guess what? They're not your client.
1: Mm-hmm. Somebody
0: else is your client, and you're only, you know. I'm trying to serve a readership when I write my stuff and writing stuff that a lot of people will read, you could argue, well, that serves a readership because clearly that's what's interesting. But, you know, it becomes very tricky on the internet where we're all competing over who can write the fastest article on Drake or on Father John Misty and who can get the most clicks out of this particular thing Mm -hmm. versus, okay, how can I get people to care about this great Portland artist or this great underground thing mm-hmm. uh, that doesn't have hundreds of thousands of dollars in marketing behind it. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's the great struggle of music criticism and probably film criticism oh, too, good. right? In, in 2015. I also think we lived through this weird um, exception to the rule in the 2000s. Where because of Napster and file sharing and stuff... Everything was like completely upside down and it Mm -hmm. wasn't being run by corporations for the first time ever in a huge way. And music blogs came out of that and were specifically based on indie things to not get sued and because that was the taste of the people who were obsessively blogging and downloading and interested. And so it was like, at the time, I was like, oh, this is what it's going to be like now. But of course, no, corporations may you know return to their stranglehold and now everything in music is super super corporate more (laughs) so than it has been since 1999 to me um but that was very frustrating to live through this like what was to me this golden era of music discovery and being interested in new bands and now it's just like everything's handed to you on this like marketing campaign platter Mm -hmm. and it's very hard To actually go onto a music website or have a discussion about something that isn't this huge soap opera bullshit, you know, which is why we're talking about Father John Misty today.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, It does feel like, I mean, so the sun's going to have to explode for anything to change, pretty much, then.
0: Well, I don't know what has to change. I think Kickstarter is a force for good. I think, you know, Patreon, the subscription service is a force for good. I think Bandcamp is a huge force for good. Mm -hmm. The problem with Bandcamp is just the users, the amount of users. I mean, if you could convince a hundred million people, hey, this is the best way to buy music and support artists, and you can listen to it on your phone once you buy it, and it's super awesome, uh, and you can discover cool shit, you know. If you could get a hundred million people, To be like, oh, whoa, this is actually like the coolest thing, you know, and convince them, then you would solve this problem tomorrow. But I think most people are just like low information music fans and they just want to put on Pandora or they just want to listen to something they hear on the radio, which is totally fine. Not everyone has to be a music geek. It's a lot of work. Right. But the people, I think the problem is like 15 years ago, if you were that person, you would still go buy a CD you would still contribute your 15 bucks because right. you wanted to buy the CD of the single you heard on the radio.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now those people don't need to spend a penny on music. Yep. And so it's completely disrupted the ecosystem.
1: Uh, well,
0: uh... <laughs> I mean, you know, people are still making great records.
1: No, I no, I agree. And I, and I don't really... I mean, I think that there, you, there's... I think there's only one way to move forward. And I think that... Uh, this is something I've been realizing lately, um, especially, you know, sort of, uh, in the throes of working, working, working to keep alive a music magazine that I believe in, but that that has become unsustainable, which is, which is Coke Machine Glow. Uh, it's just, you, I think that you have to get to a point where you just accept the way that things are and you have to sort of figure out who you are amidst all of that. And, um, if you are a person who doesn't want to pay any money for music that you support, then you have to accept what music has become uh, or what the music industry has become. If you value uh, the act of discovery, if you value um, having a really intimate relationship with uh, with music in in discovering it in holding really Uh, deep opinions about it and engaging with the community that supports it or the context of it, um, then you have to just sort of support what you have to, you have to, you have to go out of your way to pay for it and you have to go to shows and support it that way. And you have to put effort into things that 15 years ago you didn't really have to put effort into.
0: Yeah. Well, I, you know, and I also think there's a real, there's a good analogy to this in like the world of, Tech and phone apps, because mm-hmm. if you go on and you read some of the articles written by app developers in the last few years, they read like indie rock bands complaining about not being able to make enough money or whatever to- because now the app store has like you know a bazillion things on it, and you yeah. can't stand out. there's five you know ten, twenty versions of every single kind of app you would want. You know, so you can no longer sort of be the first person and say, "I made this app and I'm going to sell, I'm going to make a hundred thousand dollars on it, and you know, have a career." Um, so I think, and something that comes with that is the expectation and the privilege of the users of these apps, mm-hmm. because nobody wants to buy one. Um, there was a study that said people who use iPhones. Tend to spend more money on apps, but people who are on Androids, especially, really don't want to pay for apps at all. So yeah. you have these apps that are not that you know people are doing them freebies. They're like trying to add content later or have it be an advertising thing, you know. And then when someone there was like this whole thing. I use this app called Reader, which is an RSS reader for your phone. Mm-hmm. You can there's a desktop version too. And the guy put out a you know a Reader 2.0 or whatever big update, and he was charging 4.99 for it. And a lot of people said, oh, "I'm not going to buy this because it just doesn't add enough functionality to justify my $4.99." Yeah. And or I already spent three dollars on this. Why should I pay for it again? Mm-hmm. And it's like that person who says that needs to really take a big step back and recognize you're talking about this product that you use every day. Right. That somebody spent. Dozens or hundreds of hours building Mm -hmm. with the expectation or the hope that somebody would pay them to use it. And so to be like, well, this guy's been working on this thing for a year or whatever, and oh, this new version of it just isn't good enough. I'm not going to give him five more dollars. I'm not going to give him one more latte of money. Like, well, that's, you know, it just, it's just like it completely either something is wrong with that model or that person like has a really incredibly ridiculous and privileged expectation of like how the world is supposed to work, you know, cause you should not get anything for free.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I think that like another perfect analogy is to get meta for a moment is podcasts. And, uh, I am a big fan of the, um, the Earwolf network, which has, uh comedy bang bang is is it's led by scott ackerman it's um that's sort of the and they have a lot of other good shows um but that's the you know the at the forefront of, of of the earwolf platform and they recently just introduced um an app called Howl, uh which they also have a sister network called Wolf pop which is more pop culture oriented stuff um not as much comedy podcasts uh And the Howl app, uh, you can get it for free, or you can get a premium, which I think is $4.99 a month. Um, And basically all all podcasts on uh, Earwolf and Wolf Pop, um, you can only get episodes that are older than six months if you pay for the premium service. Uh, But also the premium service comes with... um, a shit ton of bonus content, uh, podcasts that you can't get anywhere else. Um, also like bonus episodes of stuff that you've already heard on top of the, uh, the older episodes that you can't get for free anymore. And what they're trying to do, they also have all the episodes of WTF, uh, Mark Marin's podcast. And I think that they're trying to get other podcasts who either don't have networks or from other networks to come on and, and, I think that what they're trying to do is provide an alternative to Apple's uh, podcast app. You know, like, I listen to podcasts through Apple's podcast app. That's just what I do. It's the iTunes podcast app. They're trying to provide an alternative. And all they're asking for is $4.99 a month. Even I... I'm not even paying that. And I listen to their podcasts pretty much all week. Right. Because
0: Um, you're not being put in a... You're sort of not being forced into it. Yeah, I think all this stuff is really tricky because like I subscribe to I think three things. I subscribe to Netflix mm-hmm. and pay for that we pay for that every month. And I pay for uh, my Adobe Photoshop and mm-hmm. Lightroom, yeah. which is a work expense. I use that for work every day, that's ten bucks a month. And then I pay for RDO to stream music. Yeah. And for a long time I was on their $5 web only plan and then I canceled it because I was like, oh God, I'm not really using this that much. I kind of don't want to spend this $5. Mm-hmm. And um, then I changed my mind and went back to it and that plan had been discontinued. So now I'm paying $5, $10 a month.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, and I have it on my phone. and But that's also sort of like a work expense. you yeah. know? Um, But I don't know. It's like I try to buy music every week. I, will, I gave 20 bucks to... Jesse Thorne's podcast funding drive for Maximum Fun. Yeah, yeah. He's he's my favorite podcast person. I Mm -hmm. wanted to support that. But I also don't do that every year. Right. I mean, it's a funny thing because you're like, well, what? I have to go pay $4 to get that latte or I have to go pay $10 to get that sandwich that I'd like to go eat tonight. Mm -hmm. But I don't have to do it for this album or this movie or whatever. And so you have to actually make a judgment for yourself.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, should I actually contribute to this? Do they need my money? Is it even does it doesn't even come into your mind? And I think for a lot of people it doesn't. Like for you and I, it it does. Right. And at least you're like thinking about it. And I think that's really Well, well you know, I mean the really important thing to do.
1: It's like, I mean, we would love to have someone pay us money to do this podcast, sure. We do it completely out of our own free time. We both have full time jobs, uh, plus other projects and things that we care deeply about, and and you know, family and people that we want to spend time with. And uh, not that I don't love spending time with you, Dave, but no, you know, I mean, like this this takes time. Sure. We just spent our it's, whole we spent our whole like... night recording a podcast. Right. It's <laughs> it's you
0: could call it you could treat it as labor. Right. And it's. I mean to me the podcast is like I think of it as a hobby because mm-hmm. we're talking about if I wanted to do a podcast that made money if we were going to do one that made money um I would be talking about I would say we should talk about tech or we should talk about movies mm-hmm. and do a new movie every week or you know there's lots of things we could do that would have a wider appeal than talking about essentially an ABC family drama for teenage girls
1: or literally whatever we feel like talking about
0: right like if we had sort of a more focused thing yeah. or you know or we could do an interview podcast or whatever you know yeah. there's all these sort of routes we could take if we wanted to do this as a monetized vehicle mm-hmm. um i like doing what we do yeah me too and i would it would be nice to make money on it but you know i mean at this point my attitude is and what the 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 listeners that we have bless you Thank you for sticking with us. And, you know, I think we do a pretty interesting pod, but I, it really does surprise me that we have so many actual hundreds of people who are interested in hearing two 30-something dudes talking about Pretty Little Liars every week. So that's really – I appreciate that a lot. I don't take it for granted. Um,
1: yeah, I mean – But,
0: yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think the podcast helps me be sharper in my criticism, and it helps me just I, – I almost think of this as like uh, – practice in a way or Mm -hmm. like chops building for just thinking about stuff or just, you know, talking to you makes me think of it in a different way and Mm -hmm. talking about stuff versus writing about it and being a little more isolated or tweeting stuff or whatever. Like this is just a very different way of, uh, approaching criticism and I find it very helpful.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I, what my, my day job involves, uh, talking with a lot of people that I don't like to talk to. So (laughs) <laughs> I like talking to you, but it helps me, like, you know, develop conversational skills. On top of, you know, forming arguments that are coherent and that uh, have a point to them, uh, I know I have a tendency to sort of get lost in the middle of sentences. But No, I
0: think, I, I definitely feel like I being a although as rambly as we are in this podcast, mm. I think I'm significantly less rambly mm. than I was before, and mm. like being on doing this kind of thing makes me try to be more concise and get to the end yeah um you know to the to the, the limit <laughs> to my limited ability to do so, but yeah, I think this is just like doing this has been a cool exercise to me as far as spe- you know speaking concisely and trying to be funny, and you know of course I'm interested in. Talking, I've talked on panels and moderated panels yeah. and I'm interested in public speaking in the pop culture world and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I would love if something like that came of this or another podcast opportunity or whatever. But, well, you know, I, I don't do this with that sort of as a goal.
1: Right. And I think that like one in almost a sort of a contrary way, you know, I think that a lot of uh, culture, pop culture writing or criticism or blogging, uh, or even just plain old internet culture in general is sort of like consuming content in order to have an opinion. You know, it's like we've lost track of the, the actual joy in consuming as opposed to consuming in order to have an opinion at the end of that consumption.
0: Well, and like dialogue as a way of better understanding Right, because criticism now sometimes someone will write something responding to something somebody somebody else wrote, but so often that's just like to tell it to fuck off mm-hmm. you know it's like why so and so is wrong about this thing, yeah, and I honestly, I'm so sick of it, and I'm so sick of like the Twitter culture of just like here's my opinion, and like we're gonna go at it, and like anything you do on Twitter any kind of conversation you have is seen as confrontational. Mm-hmm. And there's no room at all for like, let's do what we're doing right now, which is you and me talking about our ideas mm-hmm. and seeing if we can come to some understanding or consensus. Yes. And I would love to see more of that in criticism. A piece I read today, which was great, was like uh, Drowned in Sound did their Carly Rae Jepsen review as a G-chat conversation between mm-hmm. two of the writers. And there's been a lot of cool roundtables uh, in pop culture I think Vulture has done some and uh, Pitchfork's done a few and if you have people actually talking to each other instead of just like individually writing a blurb and submitting it which is what some of these things end up being mm-hmm. uh, when people talk to each other about culture guess what it's incredibly interesting and revealing as yeah. opposed to like let me get on my high horse and tell you how, how it is and tell you why you're wrong right? and like not want to hear any dissenting opinions at all because fuck you
1: yeah, it's exhausting. I hate that. It's exhausting, and it really just sort of makes you feel depressed about, like, what, what is the point anymore? Is, didn't we all start doing this because we, we love the things that we're talking about? Right. And now it's just, like, it's not, it's not anymore about us loving what we're talking about. It's us loving the act of talking about it as opposed to l- loving the thing that we're talking about. Right. I think... Or loving both of those things equally.
0: Well, and the I mean, to get back to money, the dynamic changes when you're doing something for a living versus Mm -hmm. when you're just, like, we can say whatever we want on this podcast. Yeah. Because we just do this for fun, and there are no stakes. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter. Um, But as soon as you have to go to work every day and you have to be thinking about film or music or whatever as something that you are now reporting on, or if you're a musician, you have to go play every night, you have to write songs that you feel good about playing every night as opposed to, like, this is what came out of me on tuesday. yeah. and I, I don't i that was what i felt. and then you have to you know one of my favorite questions to ask bands especially bands who do these very emotional songs uh like typhoon, great portland band, their last album, you know, it's dark, it's really personal and vulnerable, and i asked this the singer uh Kyle, what does it mean to you or how, what does it take out of you to go on stage every night and sing these songs? And he looked at me and he was like, you know, it's really hard. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that aspect of it doesn't necessarily get thought about of like the emotional struggle of having to transfer this thing that you love so deeply into this thing that you have to do as labor, Mm -hmm. you know. And that's not to be ungrateful for being a music critic, which like... Is not a real job, even you know. <laughs> like it's really fun. I get to listen to music all day. I get to you know. The worst thing I ever have to do is like, oh, I have to write a news article today for forty-five minutes. Yeah, you know. So I am very aware of the level of privilege. But I think as, as a music fan, it absolutely warps your perspective. Oh gotcha. and it warps your enjoyment. Mm-hmm. That's that's definitely something that happens.
1: Oh, yeah. I think the same thing as, as, a, as a movie critic. And, and I, that's not even my full-time job. You know, that's something that I get paid for, but it doesn't pay my bills. But, yeah, I, I mean, as a, as a former music critic who dabbles now and again, I remember when I stopped, when I just plain stopped doing it, it felt refreshing because I felt like, oh, my God, I don't, I don't have to qualify anything anymore. And now with movies, which I love being a movie critic uh, it's like kind of been a dream of mine for a while uh, i do, I do feel like I have to qualify my movie watching habits like I have to i there's a lot of things I have to watch and I don't necessarily uh, want to watch them I want to watch other things right you know well it's
0: like you have to have a level of expertise right and that means you and have authority. to have long- that means you have to have all yeah. this con- all those contexts, right? Yeah. I mean, especially if you're doing some crazy list of the hundred best documentaries of all time or whatever. Like, yeah. oh my god, yeah. you know, I would that would be something where I would feel like I had to watch 400 movies to write it.
1: Oh yeah, and that's exactly what I did. Yeah. Although it did get to a point where I was just like, I can't keep yeah. doing this. You just have to call it a day. I just have to like, yeah, exactly.
0: But that's yeah. I mean, even you know, when I if I I went when I got, I went to go see Rush the other day and like. Mm-hmm. I'm not this lifelong listener of Rush, mm-hmm. uh, so I made myself a playlist of all the songs in their set list and sat there and listened to the whole thing and did the homework.
1: Yeah, you know,
0: mm-hmm. and that was great. But and I really enjoy and respect Rush, and so that was something I enjoyed mm-hmm. doing. But it's like I try to do stuff like that almost every week for going to see some some band, and not every. I mean, that's just the job. But as far as like my listening habits. Um, I would be listening to a lot less of certain genres or certain artists or whatever, if I didn't have to sort of be keeping up. Yeah. Like would I ever listen to future again? If I wasn't a music critic? No. Cause yeah. I don't think his music's very good, yeah, but you know, I'm... he's sort of this important figure and I have to be like up on what's going on and be able to reference him or mm-hmm. Drake or, you know, I'm a Drake fan, but you know, people like that who sort of are, you can't, or Lana Del Rey, yeah. like, I went I didn't end up writing about the album but like you know I sat down and listened to the her new album the other day because she's like an important figure and it was important that I be familiar and know what the new record sounds like. Mm-hmm. And I think it's vapid and terrible and I'm actually <laughs> I am astounded. I think I've never seen a record so empty and bad that has gotten so many thousands of words and most of those words have been like wow this is very like empty and sad and that's kind of crazy and every critic stops just short of saying and you don't really need to buy this because it's horrible. Right. Like every critic stops right before stepping off the cliff and just being like, "Yeah, this was a big waste of everybody's time."
1: Well, I mean, I I, I don't want to talk about this now, but I think that we could talk about that. Maybe maybe next week we'll talk about the Leonard El Rey album, um, or
0: just I think I think that's a I think it's a the natural result of like the end of the consumer guide era of music writing and the yeah. end of like the eighty-five word blurb, and it's like. Um, did you see the Roger Ebert documentary, The Life Itself mm-hmm, documentary? Yeah. So there's the, that whole section where they're talking about like how Roger, the Pulitzer Prize winner, was like responsible for the death of film criticism in a way, where yeah. that was the critique because so
1: the thumbs up, thumbs
0: Yeah, you're reducing it to a yes or no. Mm-hmm. Music criticism, I think, because of YouTube and Spotify and the the access, has completely swerved around, and now we. The music only—the quality of the music—is only superficially written about, yeah. and now it's like, how is this? How does this fit into the soap opera narrative of this artist? Or, you know, I'd be very interested in an article where someone interviewed Lana Del Rey fans and said, "Why do you like this?" Because that's way more interesting than a bunch of critics saying, "Man, this is really sad." Yeah, it's really—it's really crazy that they let her make this like very slow, sad, boring record. Isn't that crazy? Because that's not really. It doesn't explain anything. It doesn't tell me like why people. What's well, not? It's not interesting that she made the record. It's interesting that like millions of people will listen to this shitty record and love it.
1: Well, like, that's why? The, that's why the thing, that though. Happen? Is like, but it is about that she made the record. It's no like to to criticize this record is to criticize her to the like the very core of who she is as an artist. You're criticizing. Uh, All of the artists that she emulates, all of the culture that she emulates, the image, the that whole idea of like this sort of like sixties pinup girl or whatever. I haven't even listened to it, so I don't even really know.
0: It is her slowest and drowsiest and most boring album. The lyrics are very thin. The first song I think is really good. And there's actually like an interesting thematic There's actually like an interesting narrative arc to the song. But then it just gets into just, you know, pulling words out of a hat. And, you know, it's just a completely unenjoyable album. And if someone like, I would love it if someone who listens to it 20 times and it's their favorite album of the year, if that person would be like, let me explain to you who I am and why I love this. Because I don't, It's you know, even things when I don't like, I usually can understand, okay, here's why somebody likes this. Right. This record, like I don't just I don't get it at all. It's just so empty and so unpleasant even compared to her previous albums. But, <laughs> you know, anyway.
1: Okay, so that's so that's too deep into it. Listeners, uh, if you really love the Lana Del Rey album and you want to talk to us about it, let us know.
0: Um, well, this is probably a good time to wrap up.
1: Yeah, you can let us know via Twitter, where we are at PLGM podcast, um, where you can also find mine and Dave's Twitter handles. Uh, it's right there in the little, uh, description thingy.
0: Yeah. And you can check out, check us out on this week's Cabernet and a, um, uh, where we had much more of a, uh, strictly PLL podcast. Um, that was a good time, and definitely check out their, their back catalog of episodes as well. They're super funny and right. uh, just as obsessive as we are.
1: Yeah. Um, you m- Also, if you listen to the, their episode uh, with us on it, you will discover some secrets. We revealed <laughs> some real secrets about ourselves.
0: It got weird. <laughs>
1: It got got so weird, man.
0: It got a little weird. Um, And you can also, we talked, you know, it's funny because we talked about this on Cabernet and A, that we always wait to the very end of our podcast to say, please rate us on iTunes (laughs) because it really helps us spread the word. Um, But if you're still with us and you want to drop some five stars, that would be really nice of you. Just go into your app and... Drop that review in; it'll be Seriously, really
1: awesome. Yeah, we, yeah, please. Uh, I think that every podcast you've ever listened to has said this, but it's true. The if you rate or review us, that really helps us out.
0: And now we're doing free advertising for iTunes.
1: <laughs> right, so, so there you
0: go. Brand the world of branding, <laughs> the wide world of branding cannot Apple, be escaped.
1: We Apple, it's it's a fruit, and it's also a big company.
0: Yes, we're recording this on my. 2011 macbook air my trusty trusty laptop
1: uh yeah and i just uh checked to see what time it was on my iphone 5 yeah
0: it's fine I, lo- I love apple i'm happy to give them my money every year forever that's yeah. just that's just the way it is
1: this is the world we live in now and with that uh we will see you next week so remember star us on itunes bitches